0: I really believe in the evolution of history, that we learn more about the past and there's a lot of the past to bring with us to the future, but nobody's saying that we have to bring everything in a way where there can be no future. It's about balance.
1: As someone deeply inspired by our built environment, architecture of all kinds, I think a lot about what these spaces represent in our modern society. It seems like every day I'm reading a new story expressing concern about preserving cultures that are at risk of becoming lost with changing generational guards. Architecture that represents a rich cultural past getting raised to make way for new infrastructure, the stories of one seemingly inconsequential community lost forever. These are often direct examples of the cliche expression, you don't know what's missing until it's gone. But even in less dramatic, more subtle ways, we have a tendency to forget to protect something until we see the visible cracks of it slipping away. So it becomes even more of an imperative to take proactive measures to protect what we hope will stand the test of time despite the changing whims of the moment. Even as we look out into our world today, it's important to ask the question, how do we make better decisions about what to preserve in a world that's obsessed with moving forward? To explore this question and others, I sat down with Daniel Paul, an architectural historian with experience in the historic preservation field. Throughout Daniel's career, he successfully listed local, state, and federal landmark applications that include the Capitol Records Building in Hollywood, as well as the iconic Griffith Park. And he started down his career in his youth when he became fascinated with the folk art environments during his years of undergrad. It was a little known place called Bottle Village in Simi Valley that caught Daniel's attention. He spent his time volunteering at the space, eventually doing everything he could to protect its very existence, finally handling the landmark application that would ensure Bottle Village's future back in the 1990s. Welcome to Living Untitled. Well, hey, let's just dive right in. Okay. You know, this will be fun. This is super okay. fun. What makes a piece of architecture historically significant in the first place? Like you're doing this all day long. You're evaluating mm-hmm. architecture with this, uh, probably asking yourself that question. Mm-hmm. And you have your own sort of rubric of that you use to answer it. Mm-hmm. We have
0: criteria criteria of eligibility that when we complete an application, a building must meet one of those criteria. It doesn't need to meet all four. And those general criteria are, is this property, it could be a building, it could be a structure, it could be an object, it could be a landscape design. So it doesn't just have to be a building. Uh, Anything affixed to the ground, you could landscape. I mean, I'm sorry, you could landmark a a mural, a, a sculpture. Uh, you could landmark a park. I mm-hmm. I did Griffith which you Park. Did, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is this property associated with a broad pattern or event mm-hmm. of significance? That's one criteria. Mm-hmm. So, uh, is the did something important happen here, or is it associated with a larger pattern? Mm-hmm. So, if, let's say I was about sixty miles east of here in Riverside, uh, which is in the in what we call in Southern California the Inland Empire. That was the citrus capital. That area was the citrus capital of the world in the 1890s. Riverside, I believe, was the richest city per capita in the United States in the 1890s. Mm. You'd never know that. You would never suspect mm-hmm. that now. Even though the downtown is quite nice with the Mission Inn and everything, but if there's an old property there associated with the citrus industry, even if it's not a pretty building, yeah. let's say it's a packing house. Yeah. It has a distinctive association with a, a pattern or yeah. event of significance so uh, and, and, or social significance. Yeah. So that's one. Mm-hmm. The second criteria we generally use is, is this property associated with a significant person? Mm. So is this... There's a house somewhere in South Central for a man named Ralph. I think his name was Ralph J. Bunch, B-U-N-C-H-E. And he was an uh, an African-American gentleman who was really high up, I believe, at the United Nations. Oh, wow. Cool. And and this was back a long time ago, in the 50s or 60s. The house is charming, but it doesn't look like anything from the outside. It's that it was associated with him. It was where he grew up. And I believe the same case in Pasadena with Jackie Robinson's house or... That one doesn't come up too much. Um, The the one that does come up the most of criteria of eligibility is the third one. So, Mm -hmm. and that's design. A lot of people, that's the easiest one to see. I could be driving down the road. Is this a distinctive or historically significant example of a design? So is it an important example of, I don't know, uh, free classic Victorian architecture of the 1890s? Is it an important example of uh late 1950s era post and beam architecture yeah. you know the, mm-hmm. this mid-century modernism a lot of what i deal with is the 1970s mm-hmm. you know which is especially when i first started working with this in the early 2000s yeah people thought that was just so strange and odd and kind of alienating or whatever <laughs> but there are good examples from that of late modern architecture and yeah. so and then the so there's uh, so you know broad patterns or events of social significance yeah. there's people uh, a significant person and then there's architectural design and architects tend to fall under there too so is mm-hmm. this an important work by frank lloyd Wright or frank gehry yep. or somebody less less known than them or you know who's an important architect finally the fourth criteria which i don't use too much is mm-hmm. is associated primarily with archaeology does this property have the potential to yield information important to history or prehistory? Mm, so that yeah. tends you can landmark an archaeological site as well, and, and often with a lot of tribal, early tribal work with Native Americans, yeah. um, you you're dealing with tribal resources. So and that and California is very good at honoring those. They yes. have the the tribes have their own tribal historic preservation officers. Mm. So. There's four criteria, and we're almost done. And then there's uh, there's there's local, state, or federal level. Huh. So the city of Los Angeles has their own criterion of eligibility. West Hollywood, I believe, has their own ordinance. Or uh, Calif, the state of California has some criterion of eligibility. As do the does the federal government for the National Register of hmm. Historic Places. Those. Criteria of eligibility are more or less the same at the city level, at the state level, at the Mm. federal level. So that's the matrix or those are the rubrics in, in in which I find a property
1: eligible, Mm. then when you submit a landmark application, which is part of the work that you do, you, you are heavily involved, very involved in this landmarking process, Right. what does it then mean to deem something as a historical landmark okay. and they therefore like what does that mean for that piece of architecture
0: so i yes I, so i i fill out the application mm-hmm. and before i answer that i'll just tell maybe i should just say really quickly what's involved in the application because yeah, that may help inform yeah your answer a typical landmark application whether it's at the local for the local government uh at the state level or the federal level Generally involves the same parts. Mm. Uh, I'm writing really detailed architectural descriptions or or <laughs> descriptions of the property, yeah. where I uh, articulate what are called the character defining features mm. of that property. Sometimes I even do a bullet list outside of the of the narrative descriptions of what those character mm. defining features are, uh, and so there's a real uh, like a just sort of like a you know a really detailed let's say i'm landmarking a house mm. i start off describing how many stories it is what kind of plan what kind of roof type uh what kind of cladding it has what kind of windows are they original are they replacement are they you know six over six wood frame double hung are they aluminum sliders from the 60s there's all this lingo so yeah. I, that a lot, that gives me an opportunity to look at the building really deeply and digest yeah. it, which I rather enjoy. So there's the descriptions and then there's the significance statement. Yeah. And in the significance statement, I I it's not just telling, it's all about showing. If I declare something's eligible under a given criteria, I immediately need to contextualize it against yeah. that uh, criteria. So. If I think a house is an important example of, I don't know, a craftsman bungalow, Hmm. I have to sort of lay out what I have to demonstrate that I know what craftsman, what a craftsman bungalow is, Hmm. sort of give a little history of craftsman bungalows, Uh, other important examples, let's say I'm landmarking it at the local level. Uh, and contextualize the building I'm trying to protect against those other ones Hmm. to show that this does not exist in a vacuum and I'm not finding this eligible just because I say it's eligible. It, It can't be, look, I'm an architectural historian and i think this is important period that would be kind of egotistical you know i have to (laughs) i have to demonstrate (laughs) why it's important you know i can't just go in there and do that and um you know that would be kind of that wouldn't be good practice anyway so and then a lot of photographs and a lot of uh you know a timeline uh and then i step through what are called the seven aspects of integrity and the way we Mm. use integrity is does this property look like it did during its period of significance? And then I have to describe what that period of significance is too. Yeah. If if it was a, you know, uh, for the Integratron, I did the Integratron. Yeah, Are you cool familiar space. with the Integratron? Yeah, so cool, I love that. So <laughs> I feel like a lot of people in Los Angeles know what the Integratron is. They've totally. had a sound bath there. Um, I did the Integratron and I, I'm trying to remember uh, the period of significance for the Integratron started in 1960 when uh, the Integr- when George Van Tassel mm-hmm. began Integratron construction, and it lasted until 1978 mm-hmm. because he was working on the Integratron until 1978 when he died. Uh, yeah. So uh, does this... In, in this case, Integratron looked like it did from 1960 to 1978. Mm. If it has its integrity of location, setting, workmanship, design, feeling, materials, association. yeah, I have to step through all those things and show that it has not changed. Then it, it if it looks like it did during the period of significance, then we're good. And yeah. if I could also state that it, I could demonstrate, I have to show how it meets at least one criterion of eligibility. Yeah. Okay, that's all the technical part. We got that <laughs> out of the way. Now, what does that... So you were asking what that it means or what that yeah. entails. Well, what in California, uh, we have uh, something here uh, called the California Environmental Quality Act mm. and CEQA, and one of the... Once something sequa posits mm-hmm. or proposes, which is true, is that buildings are part of our environment. And this is why I love mm-hmm. what I do. Buildings are an unavoidable part of our surroundings. You and I mm-hmm. are either uh, inside or next to buildings, probably 99% of our yeah. lives, right? So or there's true. one within view. Yeah. If we're even driving in our car, uh, very rarely are we not near any building structure or man-made object or man-made landscape at all i mean we would have to be camping on the moon you know or or i don't know maybe the desert or the beach yeah deep in it though uh, architecture is unavoidable sequa states rightfully that buildings are part of our environment Mm -hmm. and in california uh, according to sequa if you have a building that's a historically significant building Mm. And you have a project that could cause a, uh, an adverse effect uh, to that building or a, what, a significant impact, uh, that's a, considered a significant impact on the environment, or it mm. could be. That's I i agree with Sequa on that count. And that's yeah. you know, even if Sequa without it, I I think a lot of people can agree that buildings are a part of our environment. We got to yeah. look at them. They're they they tend to involve a lot of resources to make. Mm. And they uh they are not you don't you don't just wake up one morning and make a building. It's a lot of time, it's a lot of money, it's a lot of resources. And because of how much is vested in a building. Yeah. it A building often ends up being quite telling yeah. of a time, of a place, of a zeitgeist. Yeah. So um, if I landmark a building, and, and also there's a process after I complete my application. It's not, it doesn't end there. I have to go through either a, a city-level reviewing commission mm-hmm. or a state-level commission. And then ultimately for the federal documents, they need to be signed off by the keeper of the National Register. So I'm kind of making arguments. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get people to concur with my belief or my proposition that this building is eligible. Yeah. So it's it's it involves others. Once a building is is, let's say we succeed and we list a building... In California, it's different in different states. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, in California, with CEQA, uh, I, I, a building is afforded certain protections and reviews mm-hmm. before, uh, if somebody wants to go pull a building permit, the uh, planning desk or build the building and safety department must make sure that the potential work on the building is not going to substantially alter the building in a negative way. Mm. This doesn't mean you can't make any changes to a historic, I think that's a, there's a misnomer out there and a lot of people get really anxious about historic properties because they think it means every pipe and toilet and everything in the building's cryogenically frozen in place forever. That's absolutely false it just means that you have to really be mindful of the bigger character defining features of the building that convey its significance that that we that convey its integrity during that period
1: of significance that i discussed yeah. it's almost like a holistic outlook right mm-hmm. if we think about our environment like you said our mm-hmm. architecture is just as important to consider when we think about ours our environment as pretty much anything else there sure But I still, but that alone in my mind doesn't really answer my next question, which is about sort of like the why, like why this work is important that Mm. you do, because Mm -hmm. sure, again, you can say, well, it's part of the environment. So of course we want to protect it. But then one could argue, but man made it in the first place. So Mm -hmm. didn't man kind of disrupt the environment by making Mm -hmm. it in the first Mm -hmm. place? So that kind of negates the argument. So what would you say is sort of the why behind it? Like, why do you find this work so important? Why do you think people should find value in these spaces that ultimately you're making the case to protect? So first of all,
0: just to go back to what you've talked about with man on the environment, I mean, that's been ever since humans, humans have been shaping their environment for possibly hundreds of thousands of years. I mean, they, there's the earliest known structure. Uh, is Terra Amata in mm-hmm. France, the remains of it. And I think that goes back possibly 230,000 years. Yeah. There's there's a debate over that now. Man has been shaping the environment for tens of thousands of years. Mm. And, and we've needed to shape the environment the moment we left the warm savannas of Africa a mm. very long time ago. Yeah. Uh, and insofar as we're not living within, the, within a, a cliff dwelling or a cave dwelling, at that very moment, we are manipulating the environment for mm-hmm. shelter. And so that shaping of the of the environment is just to you know clarify a, a subtle point that is buildings are still the environment. So the yeah. environment is anything that surrounds us. It's not just leaves and sky even though leaves and sky are also the environment. So the built environment is still the environment. In terms of why what I do might be important there I have a belief that some buildings not all bu- not all old buildings not every old building that's cute you know i do believe there's a category <laughs> of cute but not historic just Fair. because something's cute doesn't mean every last building should be saved right yeah. los angeles has 792,000 parcels the city 792,000 there's only 1200 or is that is that right uh it, between 1200 and 1,800, I'm sorry, I don't know the number off. less than, in the neighborhood of 2,000 or possibly less (laughs) individually listed historic cultural monuments in LA out of 792,000. Wow. We're not talking that many properties here. Sure. There's more with the district. So if you get into an historic preservation overlay zone, with those, you know, let's say let's say there's a total of twenty thousand properties. That's mm. still out of seven hundred ninety-two thousand. Not that many. It's, yeah, it's small. maybe three percent. There are very few. We're talking about relatively few resources here that we are going after. I believe that the certain buildings, structures, objects, can be so telling of a past chapter mm. that it would be a loss to our history. Uh, and are sort to, to sort of whatever brought us to the point that you and I are at now yeah if those buildings disappeared whether mm. they whether they reflect a past era of design, whether they reflect whether they are where something really important happened uh, or uh, whether they're associated with someone important, mm. I feel like in our day and age, especially, and maybe this has been hastened with with, with di- digital everything. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said for materiality, mm-hmm. uh, for the tactile, and for authenticity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I, what I try to do in my work is curate or discern a handful of resources that that may be telling. not just for the past uh not just of the past but for the future so uh, i i am every bit as much interested in the future as i am the past yeah but i want an ideal future some remnants some elements of the past that that were evocative yeah and you know i can't predict what humanity is going to be like a thousand years from now 500 years from now um you know maybe there's something kind of funny in a way about trying to predict the future and what's going to seem historically important to Mm -hmm. it we can only sort of ascertain history and the future from a given point in time yeah but my job is to try to give it my best effort to discern whether it's whether it's an event, whether it's associated with an event or whether it's associated with design or something else, what is telling? What is telling that may be worth preserving for the future? And those places end up being placemakers. They end up grounding us Mm. in terms of our, our time and place and our locational ability. Yeah. Um uh, the opposite of that could very quickly become a certain kind of homogeneity. I don't mean to sound totally cynical about market forces here, mm-hmm. but um it could it I would not I'd be a little apprehensive to just leave everything to market forces alone without yeah. a little bit uh, some guardrails in terms of trying to preserve Select examples of the past to take with us. Yeah. Change is inevitable. Uh, you know, we have a whole future ahead of us. There's going to be all kinds of new buildings. I believe in allowing uh for a certain uh canvas for those new buildings mm. that, that has to happen. The future generations have to be able to leave their mark too. Um, And we have needs. But I would say that one of these important needs that we do have Mm. is to understand a sense of place and to possibly understand a sense of time and and believe in the possibility that a building can be evocative or that, that a building can be resonant. Um, through the thoughtfulness that went into its architectural design. Yeah. Um, economy, you know, I mean, this probably gets into some economic issues now. You know, it seems like in the 20s, you know, before the Great Depression happened or in the post-World War era, there it was easier for more people to invest in thoughtful, involved designs if they so Desire the market now, it seems like almost a race to the bottom sometimes, where you got to just do the quickest, cheapest thing. Yeah, and there's a lot of wonderful new design out there, too. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying all new design is bad by any stretch, but there are, I do believe in the possibility of past chapters that are resonant, and it's my job to try to discern the very good examples of those designs or to discern as best as I can as a historian, Mm. those uh, buildings associated with important events that have brought us to where we are now and that might be worth remembering uh, in the future in a way that transcends a plaque or a couple of archival black and white Mm. photographs.
1: I love a lot of the language you're using because I couldn't agree with you more if I think about place making i put it in the category of you know sense making like how we just make sense of the world mm-hmm, right and mm-hmm. memory is a big way that we do that obviously as people and we create this sort of story that is the memory mm-hmm. of our own kind of meaning of that moment right. and so you're right it's like place making we're doing the same thing and we re- when we revisit these places mm-hmm. it plays such a valuable tool in helping us to contextualize ourselves where we are today and where we once were and like you said around significance mm-hmm. it helps us to remember that significance that also brings that new layer of contextuality to like us as individuals
0: yeah totally so like you're from grand rapids right yeah yeah is there an old building in grand rapids that makes you think of home
1: ah huh, interesting You know what actually does? It's not in Grand Rapids, but what I always, when I think of home, when I think about Michigan in particular, Mm -hmm. I always think about the lighthouses that Mm -hmm. are on Lake Michigan, and those are always the first image that come to my mind. And so, you know, those would fit in that description, I would hope, of, you know, something worth preserving in a way, Mm -hmm. because they represent this beautiful... Past of what the Great Lakes used to be, and in some ways still are. And, Mm -hmm. you know, growing up, one of the things that I always found so fascinating was that the U.S. Coast Guard has such a massive presence, and is, you know, that that's like one of their kind of homes still, I think, to this day, of a a, a sort of massive presence Mm -hmm. for them on those great lakes. And so all of those lighthouses were, you know, busy and bustling and mm-hmm. were important kind of features of that area. Right.
0: So it's the lighthouses. Yeah. And so these lighthouses have kind of a distinctive character. They're not like, you know, most big box retail, nobody's going to confuse most big box retail chains with a lighthouse. Yeah. So there's (laughs) something distinctive about them. Their location against the water. Yeah, and when you go back to Michigan, that makes you. That's when you know you're home. Yes. And so now it doesn't just have to be about home. And I'm also, you know, I feel like I have to be careful. Or any historian, especially with recent past architecture, that we're not just preserving our own nostalgia. You Mm. know, I my what I think is historically significant, you know, and again, at the local state or federal level, and and the thresholds are different, you know, it has to transcend just what I think is cool or what I, I have a lot of faith in my own vision, yeah. but I try, I have to be extremely objective and it can't just be about nostalgia. And I feel like, you know, as as historic preservation has aged as a discipline, it really, it formalized in America in 1966. So that's when President Johnson passed the National Historic Preservation Act, it started with the demolishing of Penn Station mm-hmm. in New York. A lot of people thought that should have been kept, um, and that's kind of when the modern preservation began. Yeah. Um, and that's not that long ago. So you know, even historic preservation's an, an evolving process. But you know, we 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 try to really understand what makes a place a place in in mm-hmm. locational. Landmarks are an important part of that, yes. And so, and and so, my job is to try to properly recognize and identify those and um, shepherd those through, so that um, you know, in the in the hope and and it, with a certain amount of trust, that future generations or other people may find beauty in them mm. or may use them as some sort of authentic article against times that seem to be changing really quickly and or you know uh, how or, or how that's informed by technology mm. sometimes even 2 years seems like an eternity ago you yeah. know in ancient you know in ancient eras they had a whole different sense of time i mean uh, a lot didn't change in egypt for 2500 years they yeah. did the, they did things the same way uh, Stonehenge took, uh, you know, uh, a lot of generations, you know, I think it was made over a couple thousand years or yeah. 1500, um, you know, we're talking long spans of time devoted to one activity. Hmm. And I'm sort of intrigued by how the digital world is affecting that or, or changing that and obviously a big part of the digital world is is what is electric yeah. you know and uh and uh, what i deal with is what i deal with a lot of resources that all ultimately all character defining features have materiality and you know we're still you know you and I are nature ourselves. We're yeah. my flesh is natural material. It's material. and yeah. um, you know um, it's I'm not just an electrical synapse alone. Even yeah. though you know we all have electric electricity in us. So what I what I do becomes in, you know incredibly important to locate us and to perhaps to share this proposal of of. Especially around the design work, that something might be beautiful and in its beauty, it might be worth preserving rather than destroying. Mm. Uh, you know, that this was a very particular sense of beauty associated with this design. Again, it doesn't mean you have to save every cute example or every last example but there could be different examples of a given design system worth preserving for the future that others might find those attractive too. Because one thing I've noticed just in my practice over the last 30 years I've been doing preservation is that taste goes in cycles. (laughs) you know one era something will be made in an era then the following era finds it super ugly Yeah. but then later on either they're another generation after that or maybe or you just develop eyes to see all of a sudden it looks attractive again Mm. and when that when it looks attractive that second time it doesn't seem to ever totally fall out of favor again. You know, there was a time when people hated Victorian architecture. During (laughs) modernism, nobody hates Victorians now. I mean, it may (laughs) not be everybody's cup of tea, but nobody hates them. Uh, You know, uh, mid-century modernism, the same thing. I mean, just in the early 80s, in the late 70s, mid-century modernism was seen as just, just kind of just outmoded and old and then that made a huge comeback in LA you know in the 90s and whatnot and and that's not going anywhere now everything I feel like I'm dealing with like a movie like almost like a movie plot line or storyline where something is hunky-dory and it's fine and then suddenly it's hated and almost destroyed yeah and then maybe if it survives it, it's like a Phoenix and it comes, it rises out of the ashes or it comes back to life. And from there on it, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, and this happens with uh, fashion. It happens with uh, modes of design. Um, and as history goes on, I, I really am, I really believe in the evolution of history, you know, um, that we learn more about the past and, There's a lot of the past to bring with us to the future, but but nobody's saying that we have to bring everything in a way where there can be no future. It's about balance.
1: You brought up a really fascinating point for me, or or just question I guess that popped into my head when you talked a little bit about our sort of digital evolution that we're in today. Uh It it makes me wonder, and you talk a little bit about like the future of even your type of work, right? You know, I'm not necessarily saying, or maybe, I I don't know, maybe you have an opinion on this. Like, do you think we'll ever think about uh, the significance of, can we ever think about the significance of landmarking something in the digital, like in a digital sphere or ecosystem, or maybe more directly relevant to the world that we live in today? It, 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 when we think about the blend between our digital world, that's augmenting aspects of our physical mm-hmm. world, so maybe even something like Shibuya Square in Tokyo, right? Mm-hmm. It's all just the mm-hmm. digital screens, mm-hmm. and of course, there's the the sort of the, the crosswalk and pathways that like everyone mm-hmm. knows. Everyone's seen all the films, the, right. the the iconic imagery of all of this. But is there ever a world in your mind that you think will, there'll be a digital mural or something that will live on one of those LED screens on the side of a building that will want to, of course, apply the same filter? Absolutely.
0: To? Absolutely. I think it, those are, there's character, those are all, but that's because it's a material. material thing. Yeah. So even that's a material thing. I think where yeah. the question could get really interesting is what if somebody, you know, and it would be a whole different, you know i don't even know how it would be regulated or who would do it but what if somebody decided to landmark like zuckerberg's like first in- incarnation of meta or something yeah totally <laughs> you know? yeah i, I like wanted to go to the metaverse like, place like, yeah. what they people didn't have legs in the beginning right yeah. i've never been on there but what if what <laughs> if you know something it's you know i mean uh there that might be it doesn't involve real estate for one thing. So, yeah. you know, it doesn't involve real estate there, you know, that might be a different, it, that's an interesting thing because it, it brings up a whole different way. I mean, could you just save that on a flash drive or? well,
1: But there's not then real estate, the flash, like, so right. for example, my head immediately goes to in that type of instance, if you're landmarking a digital world or yeah. ecosystem, well, it has to live on a data center somewhere, right. at least based on how our uh-huh. technology infrastructure uh-huh. is set up today. Yeah, yeah. So technically, there's yeah, a little bit real of real estate. estate. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, even if it's just a, a little bit of real estate on, uh, you know, um, I don't know how many square feet. <laughs> except, you know, <laughs> probably some some uh, gigabytes. How do we do, Is there a way to tra- translate gigabytes to square feet? I don't know. I don't think so. But it's an interesting thought, I think, and I don't, I mean, I really don't, I'm not a, a tech expert at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it may not be out of the realm of possibility to at least preserve those yeah. old, and but then you know. Then you just get into you know, and I don't know. I think about this sometimes. If there's ever like a really big disaster, mm. you know, are those going to? I mean, if everything just gets unplugged, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or hacked really bad, does that mean it's gone? I mean, it could be. It could all end up being quite ephemeral, you yeah. know. And a lot of buildings are a lot of realist. A lot of buildings are too. But that's an interesting thought. I think it's a whole different set of, it's a different kind of real estate than what I deal with, but I do think it's interesting. And I do worry about, honestly, I do worry about, and I don't know, I think a lot of people probably Younger than I am could probably answer this quicker, but sometimes I do really worry about a certain type of homage a new homogeneity in Mm -hmm. the world that that some people may want that because the digital world is so overstimulated or they're so bombarded that if they take off the headset that they want just things kind of plain and generic and like uh, like. how do they locate themselves in a physical world and is that somehow harder if you're just electronic all the time yeah so you just need things all the same all identical kind of look like an like white apple store modern or whatever you want to call it all these new condos in la that all look the same Mm -hmm. you know i i get a little irritated with that but maybe there's other people who are like no we need a lot of sameness in the environment because we all are all our stimulus is digital and mm. so and i you know and i and i do teach at a college mm-hmm. i teach at two colleges by mm. the way i teach architectural history mm. and i teach art history prehistoric mm. to medieval art and the whole history of Western architecture. And I do, wow. most of my students are 18 and 19, yeah. you know, and they seem to really knock on wood. I mean, I've been doing it for 15 years. They respond extremely well. Hmm. It's just, they're like, well, we didn't know this was an option to enjoy this. We didn't know what it was involved in it. It's interesting. super interesting, yeah, you know, and I, before the COVID I would take them on like a four hour walking tour of downtown That's cool. and just, you know, it was really, so there is, there are people who who do respond to a material sensory environment of the kind that I'm sort of thinking about when I do historic preservation. Yeah. And I'm very thankful for that. Absolutely. A younger, a younger generation.
1: Yeah. Another, you know, another forward-looking kind of thing as we think about the future a little bit, there's so much focus now in I think many countries really around the world. That you hear that cities, urban environments, are incentivizing people to move into them, right? Mm -hmm. As we think about this new sort of Mm -hmm. age of industrialization that we're in the middle of at the moment, and so we're essentially asking people, encouraging people to leave the suburbs, leave the rural areas, and return to cities. And of course, like as we know in America, the 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 suburbs that sort of sprawl happened right. during a lot of the time period that we've talked about the 1950s 60s and so on and there are a lot of reasons social economic political uh-huh. that sort of led to that but now many nations are incentivizing people to be, move back to these urban environments so what happens to these suburbs now
0: well it's interesting you bring that up i there's also a trend in a lot of particularly in europe of trying to get people to move these really small towns that have been abandoned. True, So yes. they'll give you a house for $10,000 yeah. if you commit to staying there and putting more money into the house. I, I see what's going on with the cities honestly is kind of like, like with Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I see it as a little, some aspects of it are quite disconcerting. So you had an area of LA called the Arts District mm-hmm. back in the 70s, mm-hmm. actual artists lived there. That's why it's called the Arts District. Yeah. Now uh, nobody can afford to live there. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're a, just an actual person doing painting, good luck. You yeah. know, I don't know where you're going to live in the arts district. Yeah, you know, because we have the ability to be more remote now. We have laptops, we have devices. I'm curious to know. You know, in the old days, there would be an art center, a center for the arts, whether it was Paris, mm-hmm. whether it was New York. Uh, some people think that, you know, been L.A. for a while, which is kind of nice. You know, I'm, I'm very honored, you know, living here. But yeah, I'm wondering if, you know, with the way things are going, because a lot of people can't afford to live in the city. I mean, with rent being what it yeah. is, uh, let alone owning. I'm not even talking about buying. I mean, that's just out of the question. You yeah. Know? But I've... I've been intrigued by the suburbs for a really long time. Yeah. Um I'm I and part of the reason why I like the suburbs I'm not saying they were the best city planning maneuver ever. Um but I I'm I like the idea of finding interesting things where you least expect it. Yes. That's part of the reason why I wrote my master's thesis on mirrored glass, mm-hmm. 70s mirrored glass office parks. Mm-hmm. You know, I did that what in 2004, I graduated, so it was a long time ago. I was at, when I was really young, I was involved at a folk art environment called Bottle Village, uh, which was uh, 15 structures made of tens of thousands of bottles by an elderly lady. Yeah, And, you know, outsider art, as that's called, has a big following, but people still found it kind of like ugly, or this is made of garbage. I I seem to like to go after these things that nobody's looking at, and I don't mean to. Mm. It just kind of happens. But the suburbs, there's a lot of really interesting architecture in the suburbs. There's some of these, like, I, I once, some friends of mine a long time ago wanted to do a show with me, and it, you know, we never, I don't remember what happened to it, nothing. Uh, but I went and I did an architectural analysis of a Pier 1 import store from 1990 <laughs> in La Cunada, Flintridge. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and amazing. I realized, you know what, It was it's a cool, it was a great building. I mean, <laughs> just, you know, it's not, you could find something interesting where you least expect it.
1: Total, so true. You it's know, so true. and so
0: like, because architects, even if they're doing a building in the suburbs or in some random strip mall, There's probably an architect, even if it was done on a budget or whatever, who put some thought into that and tried to make it as Mm. interesting as possible or as resonant as possible. He probably invested, you know, uh, at least uh, 80 hours or more in designing it, you know, and thinking about it. And what would, you know, even anonymous buildings like that have or can have architectural resonance and can be telling now. I am really intrigued by, you know, with the way things are going Mm -hmm. in the future, with, uh, you know, um, maybe there's not going to be as much of a need to drive downtown to go to work anymore, Mm -hmm. you know, especially after COVID. I think um, there's my understanding is one of the later studies has demonstrated that people are actually more productive at home a lot of the time, that they're not just sitting around, you know, or, you know, whatever. But um, I'm intrigued by the idea that um and i've told been telling my friends this for a long time that there's the potential for future art colonies in the suburbs Mm. that that's where it's going to be because the cities are going to be too expensive nobody could afford to live there Mm -hmm. uh the uh country the the far rural areas may be either too isolated for people or some people may feel especially if things stay so polarized you know and i, I hope they get better at mm-hmm. some point but some people may feel especially kind of artistically alienated yeah you know if they have certain types of artistic practice the suburbs are perfectly anonymous. Yes. Like they've been forgotten about and everybody's trying to leave them. Mm-hmm. Some of them are still really expensive. I mean, you know, totally. oh, the the school system's really good or whatever. And, and when I say suburbs, I also mean something kind of, I mean, I don't mean to split hairs here, but there's also something called, uh, what do they call them? Like almost like an edge city. So mm. yep. a true suburb is like a bedroom, there's bedrooms and people would drive to the city But then starting, I don't know, after World War II and then really taking a hold in the 70s, uh, you had cities like Irvine where you have these sort of weird uh, sort of – pre-planned communities where you have jobs, you have bedrooms, you have com, you have everything kind of there. And so you no longer have to drive. There's no city center there. If you look at the built environment of a place like that, it's really diffuse. You have some towers, yeah. but they're they're all in dyads. There's no monumental architect. It's all just kind of diffuse. There's a couple of newer buildings there now that are taller in the last few years, but there's a funny sort of diffuseness in these they some i've heard them called exurbs yeah you know ex urb or these sort of post-industrial uh, uh spaces yeah. you know for service society for information society you know provided they're not in i mean irvine's very expensive to live in but sure. like i'm thinking about other places or maybe if you have like a strip mall and nobody's using or just the most random, like that's where the anonymity is going to be, you know, because yeah. I feel like the cities now, I love being in the arts district or downtown, but I think there's a real self-awareness there mm. and and a suburb there's not that same level of so you could you almost can get away. a little more liberty you may you may have the possibility of getting away with a little more artistic liberty in a suburb you're not there's not one right way to do something Mm -hmm. of like whereas in the you know in a very in a in a a very conservative environment there may be a desire for a certain type of conformity and in the city it's either too expensive you know Mm -hmm. or you know the gallery scene is only so big and everybody expects a certain type of contemporary art in the suburb, like Los Angeles in the 60s, mm-hmm. you know, to take to take it back a little bit, when I, I wrote about the advent of the mirrored glass skin, which mm-hmm. is this mirrored glass office park architecture you saw everywhere in the 70s. Yeah. And sort of this quote unquote high-tech look, smooth grids of all over mirrored glass. That started in LA by two architects caesar pally and anthony lomsden who had a lot of ability at that time los angeles was open in every sense it was horizontally open it was top geogra- geographically open and it was culturally open in the sense that mm-hmm. nobody was telling them what to do so yeah. architects could come here in the 60s and experiment <laughs> and try out new things without any without the density of somebody breathing down your neck or you know, some art, some critic on top of you telling you yes. what you're doing is silly. There was a true anonymity. Uh, there was a lot of light. There was a lot of space. There was a lot of atmosphere. And it was just sprawling and, and kind of open. Within that maloo uh, there was a new type of creativity that 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 came from that. And, and those mirror glass buildings weren't necessarily high art, nor were they trying to be high art. Sure. It was kind of like not too high, not too low. Yeah. They too were kind of anonymous like uh one of the architects called the design system non-gravitational, non-directional. Hmm. Like just kind of decentered, you know, yeah. there's no there like And a lot of people say that about L.A., especially back then. It's just kind of like there's no center there. Yeah. I'd kind of disagree with that now. I mean, in the last few years, there's clearly, you know, something going on downtown and this and that. And people know about downtown. But for a while, that wasn't the case. But in that sort of anonymity, if you don't Mm. find it too isolating, you could try a lot of really creative things. And nobody's going to tell you. That you're wrong or that this is silly, and you could end up looking like you know do something totally foolish, but you also may end up having a breakthrough. Yeah, and I think there's that same potential in suburban places hmm. where perhaps there and there may be more. I mean, I guess it would depend on. I'm sure not all suburban places are the same either. I mean, I'm kind yeah. of generalizing here, but I just like the idea of. the possibility of like what's the most what's the place nobody's thinking about what's the place that everybody's trying to get away from and if you're trying to get away from a place or you're bored with it you know you may be missing things that are kind of interesting in that place and you know you know and this idea of going to a city center might be a little bit anachronistic now in a digital age with how things work now so I'm sort of intrigued by the possibility of of art colonies in the suburbs in the future. It might be completely out there, but I'm intrigued by that possibility as something quite different from what we've seen before.
1: It's just such a powerful reminder, the work that you're doing. And even when you talk about the suburbs and the Mm -hmm. passion for reinventing those spaces sure. in really unique ways. It's just a powerful reminder for all of us as we increasingly sort of spend so much of our time in our uh, digital ecosystems sure. to just be aware of the places that we uh, come from, that mm-hmm. we're in and among our environments, mm-hmm. our built environments as just as much an important part of our physical environments and I love all of it. Thank you. Just about
0: coming to your senses. Yeah. You know, we still have our five senses. Yeah. And our five senses are intimately connected to the environment and to the spaces of our environment and uh, to spaces in general, you know, which uh, architecture is very much a part of. So a big part of what I try to do is to preserve those spaces so that... Mm. You and I and and those that come after us might find something to love about them.
1: I love it. Thank you. Okay. This was so fun. This episode was produced by the Untitled Future team. For more information about Untitled Future, please visit us at untitledfuture.com or follow us on LinkedIn. And for more episodes, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'm your host, Justin Boone. Thanks for listening, and remember, life's better when you belong.